Hello and welcome to uh, this week's edition of the Big Recon on Sports Podcast. I am your host, I am the Big Recon, and today is Saturday, June 6, 2020, and I got something new to add to this. Big Recon on Sports is now a proud member of the Timeskew Podcast Network, and you can check us out at timeskew.com slash podcasts. So we added uh, an affiliation with Timeskewed, which is a great uh, site and location for all football and fantasy information. So if you've got fantasy football drafts coming up, because it looks like the NFL is going to play, these are the guys to go to. I will chime in and add my own stuff that I have normally done, not changing any of that stuff. So I'm going to get a lot of these boys is what we're going to talk about tonight. Of course, the Mets, Ohio State, and the Browns, and the four majors in general. So, as you can see behind me is the Black Cleveland Cavaliers alternate jersey, the number 22 of Larry Nance Jr., and that's right. Unfortunately, with the NBA okaying the 22-team tournament to find out who the champion for the 2019-2020 season will be, the Cleveland Cavaliers have been left out. After a season that we thought was going to be a little better than it was, but was a building block towards something better with the additions through the draft and a very major trade that the Cavaliers made during the season. So we're going to go through what I've personally thought of the 2019-2020 Cleveland Cavaliers, what I see for the future, and also where I see what I think they should do in the coming draft, and also in free agency. Because a lot of the contracts that they were forced into in the LeBron, era, the LeBron 2.0 era are now going to be off the books. Which is scary because it's also, believe it or not, for all those who know me, we are just 13 short days from the fourth anniversary of the 2016 NBA championship over the Golden State Warriors and the greatest comeback in NBA history. So this is a rough one for me personally because it has been that long. But we're going to dive into this season. We're going to start with some optimism as this year did with the hiring of new head coach, John Beeline, who came from, yeah, he came from that team up north. I won't say it. I won't say it because I can't say it. I just watched Jeopardy, and a guy from that state won the thing in the teacher's tournament. Wouldn't say it. So he did, all kidding aside, he did come from the University of Michigan. A very long, very successful college coach who had led Michigan to -to back-to-back 31 seasons for the first time in their school history. Of course, Dan Gilbert, being from Detroit, wanted to bring in the guy that brought the maize and gold back in, or the maize and blue back into uh, relevance in not only the Big Ten, but also in the NCAA in general. Beeline did go to a national final, and I believe another national semifinal, and a couple of Sweet 16s and a couple of Elite 8s. Never got the chip, doesn't wear the ring. So we saw with the Cavaliers going to a young team with Colin Sexton, the drafting of Darius Garland. Kevin Porter Jr., Dylan Windler. These guys, um, they were going to be a young nucleus. They do do and did have some veteran leadership in Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson. Jetty Osman, my boy Larry Nance Jr., my other favorite player of Cavalier history, Matthew Dellavedova. So they had a good mix. Were they the most talented team that the Cleveland Cavaliers have ever had? No, that was the 2016 team that won a championship. What this team was, was a very deep dive look into Kobe Altman's vision for where the Cavaliers are going to go over the next several years. This was the 50th season of the Caval- in Cavaliers history, so it was a big thing to happen. You renamed the arena from uh, Quicken Loans Arena to Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. Uh, the, new, um, the new floor with the 50th anniversary logo. Of course, you had 
the throwback jerseys from the 90s when I moved to Cleveland. Um, but there's a hoodie in my uh, closet, which is actually the Cavs logo, which was the throwback. Um, you had the new city uniforms, which were a navy blue with the CLE written across the front in cursive. So this was a big year for the Cavs because of the anniversary. What it wasn't was a big year for the Cavs because of the record. A 19-46 and record in the 65 games they were able to play, 17 short of the full season. Now, would the Cavs have gone 17-0 and down the stretch to finish at a respectable 36-46? and Absolutely not. Do I think the Cavs would have gotten to 30 wins? Yeah, I think they could have. They were playing really well uh, when the season paused, of course, for the COVID-19 pandemic. I saw a lot of things I really liked. And I'm going to start with the biggest move the Cavaliers have made in season since 2015. And that is the trade for Andre Drummond from the Detroit Pistons. Drummond is one of the top five centers in the league. He is a rebounding and shot blocking machine, which is something the Cavs really didn't have. As good as I feel Tristan Thompson is, he's not Andre Drummond. Of course, Tristan Thompson this year hit a few threes in one game and everybody lost their mind. Um, Kevin Love, again, injuries. Jetty Osman, you can see he is transitioning so very well from being a part-time player on a championship team to a leader on a team that is rebuilding. Remember, Osman is still a young man. He's not, he was drafted in 2015. He stayed in Turkey for a couple years. I think he was drafted at 18. So that means now he's what, 23? But the thing I enjoyed the most this season was the tandem of Darius Garland and Colin Sexton. And here's why. And I'm going to lose the hat for now because it's a little warm in here. Darius Garland is the polar opposite, in my opinion, of Colin Sexton. For anybody who didn't watch the Cavaliers this year, it's tough to describe. But I'm going to give it a shot. Colin Sexton plays at a frenetic pace. He is Probably the fastest dude you will ever see. I mean, this is a guy who at Alabama had to fill in when, or had to do all the scoring himself when the rest of his team was ejected. And they finished the game, I think it was five on three. Sexton scored 38 points that night, and that was really what drove the Cavaliers to draft him in the first round two years ago. Darius Garland is quick. He's great off the dribble. He's got a good mid-range game. But what Darius Garland does that Colin Sexton doesn't is Darius Garland plays with patience. And you saw Sexton starting to go that way as the year went on. But Garland plays that way all the time. Here's where that helps. When you have a guy playing at a frenetic pace and you have a guy playing next to him who slows the game down, they can become a cohesive unit and build off their strengths. Now, both guys came into the league as point guards. Very smartly, beeline at the beginning of the season, move Colin Sexton to the two. Let Darius Garland run the one. Then on opening night, you had Kevin Love at the four, you had Jetty Osman at the three, and you had Tristan Thompson at the five. Not a bad starting five, considering what the Cavaliers don't have. They don't have the superstar anymore. They don't have Kyrie, and they don't have LeBron. So, for this team to come out with a good lineup like that, and to... Really not play bad. They did not play bad. What they didn't know how to do was close games out. I myself, I watch on my Roku TV or my smart TV in the living room, the Fox Sports 
uh, Go app where I get Fox Sports Ohio on it and I get to watch the Cavaliers. Sidebar, before I go any further. This year for the Cleveland Cavaliers was tough from the beginning with the loss of play-by-play voice Fred McLeod before the season started. Um, I have listened to Fred since I got back into the Cavs hardcore in 2014. Um, If you go on YouTube and you type in Cavaliers win the championship, you can see his reaction to winning the 2016 NBA championship. A man from Brook Park, Ohio. I believe it's Brook Park, but he is from Northeast Ohio. He had lived through the failures of the Cavaliers. He had lived through the failures of the Browns. He lived through the failures of the Indians. He lived through the Browns leaving and then being basically an expansion team. Fred McLeod broke down and cried when he said, Good night, Oakland. It's over. The 52-year drought is over. John Michael, who was the radio guy, stepped into the booth with Austin Carr and was phenomenal. But for the first year, it was tough without Fred. So going back to the players. With Garland and Sexton playing off each other, the Cavaliers' backcourt actually looked really, really good. Something it did not do the year before. When it was um, Sexton as a rookie trying to run that team. Uh, And Rodney Hood playing off of him, and Rodney Hood finally being the number one scoring uh, guy on the team to go with Love and those guys. But they never got off on the right foot last year. This year, they were improving every night. Uh, Windler actually got hurt in the preseason. He didn't play at all this year. So we don't really know what he's going to be. The diamond in the rough is Kevin Porter Jr. He is an absolute monster, and he's going to be a problem for teams for years to come. Uh Great, great off the dribble. Good touch at the back, at the rack. Decent mid-range game. Can step back and hit a three if you really need him to. Him and Garland and Sexton are going to be a phenomenal nucleus to build around. Then the unthinkable happened. And all the optimism of bringing in one of the most decorated collegiate coaches of all time ended when John Beeline asked out and J.B. Bickerstaff became the head coach for the Cleveland Cavaliers on an interim basis. We don't know what they're going to do in the offseason with that. Bickerstaff, as of now, is still the head coach. But when he came in, you could see a different team. And I don't think Beeline lost a locker room. I think he was in over his head a little bit, which is not anything that's terrible. Not everybody's going to be what they were at one level at the next. You see it all the time. College, collegiate players who are just absolute monsters in college can't be stopped. Uh, Putting up tons of points a night, a defensive matchup issue. Turned out to be Christian Leitner, who was really nothing in the NBA. Unfortunately, John Beeline stepped away, ending his Cleveland Cavaliers tenure really before the halfway point of the season. But from the time Bickerstaff came in, you saw a different Cavaliers team. You saw a more tenacious defensive team. You saw one that was going to bang the boards a little more. And you saw one that was able to do that because of the trade Kobe Altman made with the Detroit Pistons to bring in Andre Drummond to man the center of the team. Drummond is an absolute beast. He is a matchup nightmare. He is the closest thing to a true center that I have seen in years. Now, when I grew up, because I'm a little older than everybody else, the centers in the NBA played in the middle. They didn't 
venture out to the three-point line. They didn't bring the ball up if they needed to. They weren't running the offense like a guard at times. The centers when I grew up, Patrick Ewing, Hakeem Olajuwon, Shaquille O'Neal, those guys weren't ball handlers. Those guys weren't stepping back and hitting threes. Rick Smith, who went to Marist College across the river from me, was not a guy who could play on the break. He was a center. He was a beast in the middle. Brad Doherty for the Cavaliers was that kind of player. The centers now have to do so much more because of the athleticism of the other guys that play on the floor. There are no true fives anymore, except for Drummond. And this is where it brings in an interesting thing for the Cavaliers going forward. With the athletic young guards, with Kevin Love, who not only can play underneath, averaging almost 20 boards a uh, game when he was in Minnesota, for a full season. Not his career, a full season. <laughs> um, and then having guys like Jetty Osman and Larry Nance to come off the bench behind him with Tristan Thompson if he resigns, now you have that stalwart in the middle where you don't have to worry about offensive rebounds hurting you too much. You don't have to worry about uh, getting beat on the glass. If Thompson and Drummond are on the same team, you're not going to get beat on the glass to go with Kevin Love and Larry Nance. It lets guys like Osman play the three, even the two, to where they can play off the dribble, be the jump shooter, be the slasher that they are, and not have to worry about having to take a defensive assignment that's going to kill their energy level. So I love the Andre Drummond move. Um, I can't say enough about it. So as Bickerstaff got his teeth into this team a little more, the defensive intensity was turned up, which I think is where the, this Cavaliers team, with as athletic, as athletic as they are, can make moves going forward. So when we finished talking about the Cavaliers season... The 50th season of the Cavaliers start out much like the first one in utter disappointment. Again, the 19-46 record really isn't going to do any, isn't going to bat any eyelashes. But there is a lot to build on for the future. They were a hot team going into this break. I was hoping the NBA would let them play again because I think they could have made some noise. How funny would that have been if they played the Lakers in the finals? Not that they would have gotten past Milwaukee, but I thought it would be funny. So, here's what I think the Cavs need to do going forward. The Cavaliers are missing that star power. Not that I don't think Kevin Love is not a star, but at the same time, he's not what he once was. When Kevin Love came to Cleveland, he had to take a step back. That was LeBron's team. And it was Kyrie's team. John Cena made the joke at the ESPYs years ago. He thought Kevin would be off in the corner. Alone. Screaming, I'm open. Kevin is now a leader on this team. He needs a running mate. And as much as I love Garland, as much as I love KPJ, and as much as I love Colin Sexton, he needs a running mate. Full disclosure. I did not watch a lot of college basketball this year. I was working on content for this, another being college basketball. I had planned on doing a bracket live on YouTube, but of course we didn't have a tournament. I don't know if the Cavaliers make their moves in the draft or if they try and find somebody in free agency. 
I don't have a list of the free agents coming in because I don't know how the NBA is going to address their offseason. Um, I don't know how they're going to address contracts because of the shortened season. Are guys going to be like, okay, you're an unrestricted free agent. Oh, well, you're, you know what? You would have been an unrestricted free agent, but with everything that happened, we're going to make you a restricted free. I don't know what they're going to do. There's a lot of ins and outs in the labor stuff that's got to happen for us to be able to understand where they're going to go starting next year. The Cavs need some star power, but I don't think it's star power is going to put them over the top. I think what they need is the one thing this franchise, outside of 11 of the 50 seasons, has never had. Consistency. The biggest thing about the LeBron James 1.0 and 2.0 eras was consistency. LeBron was the man. He ran the show. At the end of the first tenure of LeBron James in Cleveland, did that get out of hand? Absolutely. Part of the reason he went to Miami. During the second run of LeBron James, did that help get a title to this city? Yes, it did. Now, as I've said before, I'm not a LeBron fan. What I am, I'm a fan of the man, but as a basketball player, if he's not on my team, I don't care. But we'll have the Jordan-LeBron debate at some point in time. Um, what I am is someone who pays attention to my teams. And that is the thing the Cavaliers had, and that word is consistency. Yes, they had several different head coaches. Yes, they had different guys in the front office. Yes, they went from Gordon Gunn to uh, Dan Gilbert being the owner. But LeBron was always the focal point. You knew he was going to be the focal point on the night of the draft when he said he was going to light Cleveland up like Las Vegas. The Cavaliers have had zero consistency in the years LeBron has not been there. Really, if you look at the Cavs' entire history, no consistency at the beginning. Then you had the miracle at Richfield with guys like Austin Carr and World Be Free and those boys. And then you go forward, you don't really have any consistency until Larry Nance Sr., Mark Price, Craig Elo, Brad Doherty, those boys. They moved from the Richfield Coliseum in the suburbs downtown to the Gund Arena at that point in time. The tail end of Mark Price, you bring in the Brevin Knights, the Bobby Suras, the Sean Kemps, and still no real consistency. And then 2003, you draft LeBron. LeBron is there through the 2010 season, but they made him the focal point from day one, and that consistency is when the Cavaliers really took off. When he came back, everybody in the organization understood he was going to be the focal point. Now, I'm not saying you got to get LeBron back. Um, I'm not saying you even got to wait a couple years and draft his kid. But the Cavaliers need to find some kind of consistency. Will a third straight year with Kobe Altman as a GM help? Absolutely. They've got to figure out the head coaching thing. This has been the Achilles heel. Personally, I don't think they should have fired Tyron Lue. Six games into the season after LeBron left. I think Ty Lue could have put a toughness on this team that would have made them a better team faster. Because you got to remember, that's the Sexton draft. That's getting Delhi back. That's having Jordan Clarkson there still. That's having... Um, that's still having Kevin. That's still having Tristan. I don't think JR has to leave if Ty Lue isn't fired. 
the Cavs are a little bit of a mess if you look at it from that point of view. But if you look at it strictly on the court, there is a lot to be excited about. Those two guys in the backcourt are going to be a sight to see moving forward, and I can't wait till 2020, 2021 to watch these guys again. Going to get Windler on the court this year, which he is supposed to be that uh, small forward shooting guard that can slash, play off the ball if he needs to, to go with KPJ, to go with Kevin Love, who is actually up for the um, Humanitarian Award through the NBA, which, good up, Kevin. Two thumbs up to you, sir. They also have free agent decisions to make. Uh, Delhi's contract is up, the one he signed with Milwaukee when he left after the championship. Tristan Thompson's big deal that basically LeBron brokered for him is also up. As we get done with this season and as we get into the offseason, I'm going to come back with another Cavaliers show. I'll do a preview for the following season once we have an idea of what we're going to get done. I've picked them to be the 8th seed in the playoffs the last two years. I can tell you they were heart picks, not um, actual prediction picks. If they keep improving, they're going to make me right quicker than what people expect. So, now that we're with Time Skew, we're going to try and we're going to definitely get back to the once a week um, posting. Got away from it because of a lot of uh, personal stuff going on. But now we're going to get back to it once a week. So every weekend I'm going to be in front of the computer, whether it's I'm in my bedroom right now with my Larry Nance jersey hanging up over behind me, or if I'm in my dining room putting something there. We're going to get back to every week. Now next week I'm going to do something a little different. It is going to be baseball focused next week, even though they're killing me. They're absolutely killing me. But that's not what I'm going to do. MLB.com has done a great thing over the last few months to keep baseball fans engaged. And that is they have picked the all-time teams for every franchise in Major League Baseball. They give the fans a top five and you vote on them. Anthony DeComo, the writer for the Mets, is the one that did the Mets one. And I'll give you what he gave as the Mets starting nine. And um, they gave a right-handed pitcher, left-handed pitcher, and best reliever. I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to do an all-time 25-man roster for the New York Mets. Uh, Top to bottom. A full bench. A full bullpen. A full rotation. This is one that's going to take me a while. Because as a lunatic fan of the New York Mets, I know a lot more about this franchise than I can even put down into paper. So I'm going to do a deep dive on who I think is going to be on the Mets all-time team. And I'm going to break down each position next week as we get into this. Because I am still hopeful that these guys will take their collective heads out of their rear ends and get a baseball season done. No one cares about money. We want the game. Ran over. As always, Big Regan can be found on YouTube, where we're at right now. Anchor, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Breaker, and Radio Public. We can now be found on timeskew.com slash podcasts. Big Recon on Sports on YouTube. Big Recon on Sports on Facebook. At Big Recon on Sport is my Twitter handle. And now, Big Recon on Sports on Instagram. 
Have a great rest of your week, everybody. But I close with this. 76 years ago today, the greatest amphibious assault in the Western Hemisphere of the Earth started with the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. If you see anyone with a World War II veteran hat on, or if you have family, hold them close. They have seen things none of us can ever imagine. But even then, they still had baseball to come back to. Have a great week, everybody. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the Big Recon on Sports Podcast. I am your host. I am the Big Recon. And today is Sunday, June the 14th, 2020. And as I said last week, and you can tell from the outfit, today's episode is very much about our my New York Mets and something I had been reading about the last few weeks, and that is MLB.com um, has been doing a fans vote and the writers for MLB for each team pick the all-time team. So it got me thinking, what would my 25-man roster over the 58 years of the New York Mets, what would it look like? As you can see, I'm a pretty big fan. As I boast the Mr. Met batting practice hat from the 2015 World Series, my home white and blue pinstripe jersey, and of course the t-shirt I wear, which is the in ode to the newest New York Met phenomenon, and that is the 2019 National League Rookie of the Year, the man who now holds the Major League record for most home runs ever by a rookie, the polar bear himself, Pete Alonzo. Behind me, as I've been trying to put up some of my stuff that I have for each of the teams so you know who the episode's about, you see two of the alternate jerseys. The blue home alternate, which the Mets have worn for the last few years, and, of course, the black home alternate from the Mike Piazza beginning of the David Wright, Jose Reyes eras. A, a jersey John Franco wore a lot, too. Funny I mentioned those names, because you're going to hear them in a couple of minutes. So before I get into the Mets 25-man roster, I just want to uh, weigh in on the most recent development between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. And I have this to say. For every person who is going to hammer the players about this, it is time to look in the other direction. This is not about money anymore. This is about owners not wanting to do what is in the fans' best interest. The players have given the owners options of 114 and 80-plus games played in a season with extra teams in the playoffs, universal DH. It's all been talked about. And the owners have been the ones to say, yeah, no, you're going to make too much money and we're going to lose too much, so guess what? Taking that stance, I don't believe this will be baseball's death knell like I thought it would be if the players were going to be punks about how much money they were earning. I think the owners are going to get a wake-up call. Because guess what? If you put a product on the field, the fans are going to watch. What they're not going to do is spend oodles of money, like apparently I did, on merchandise and everything else, which is how you help pay salary. And guess what? When you own a business, you have to pay the salary of the people who work for your business. This one's on the owners, guys. This is not on the players. I'll be the first one to tell you, Major League Baseball players make way too much money in comparison to people who actually have important jobs in the world. This one is not on the players. 
So as I say, as I said at the beginning, I really dug in, and a lot of the Mets stuff I know off the top of my head, just because I'm a lunatic fan, uh, like so many others in the world. But I really thought about this, and I put together what I believe would be the best starting uh, rotation, the best bullpen, and the best lineup with the best bench. Not only did I go there, I actually filled out a coaching staff. Manager, first base, second base, third base, the whole nine yards. So we're going to get to that now. And in their 58 years of history, the New York Mets have been led by their pitching. And this is no different. So I'm going to give you the players. I'm going to say a little something about each one. And then we're going to, I want to hear your opinion at the end on what everybody thinks, how I did with these guys. So we'll start at the top with the starting pitchers. And the first one is pretty easy. The man is called the franchise for a reason. 311 wins. Uh, the highest vote-in percentage in the Hall of Fame up until Ken Griffey Jr. in 2016. And as Howie Rose introduces him or his family at everything I've ever seen, the Mets' all-time leader in wins, strikeouts, and shutouts. And that is none other than George Thomas Seaver. Tom Seaver himself will be the ace of this staff. And when I go through the next four, there these are five legitimate aces in my opinion, and the fifth one's going to shock some people. So I go to number two. Maybe the greatest single season or two-year arc in the history of the New York Mets until 2018 and 2019. And that is, of course, the number five overall pick in the 1982 Major League Baseball first-year player draft, the doctor himself, Dwight Gooden who set the record in 1984 for most strikeouts in a single season by a rookie, breaking the record of longtime Cleveland Indians broadcaster and one-time phenom Herb Score over 30 years ago. Gooden parlayed a 1984 where he was the Rookie of the Year, struck out the side in the All-Star game, into a 1985 for the ages. 24-4 in a sub-2 ERA. Post Bob Gibson in the higher mound in 68, it is maybe the best season we've ever seen from a pitcher and he was 20 years old. We know what happened to Doc later on, but of course he goes on to pitch the no-hitter for the Yankees. He wins three World Series, including the 86 championship with the Mets. And I have three pictures of Dwight Gooden on my wall right in front of me here. Dwight Gooden slides into the number two spot. The number three spot actually goes to our first left-handed pitcher of the, on the staff, because there are two. I don't like all right-handed staffs. Uh, I'm a purist. I need lefties and righties. And this man, actually, this past weekend was supposed to have his number retired and be the third player to ever have his number retired by the New York Mets for a player who played for the Mets. Of course, Seavers 41 and Piazza's 31 hang in the rafters in City Field to be joined by number five, I hope, very, very soon. But Jerry Kuzman, the number 36, is the number three starter on this staff. Kuzman was a lock down, shut down, postseason pitcher in his two runs with the Mets in 69 and 73. Of course, he pitched a complete game to win the 1969 World Series in Game 5, getting Davey Johnson to fly out to Cleon Jones. And what is not talked about more is his one-run victory in Game Number 2 and carrying a no-hitter into the seventh inning. He was lights out. He won another game in the 1973 World Series. The guy was just clutch on a Met team that was built on pitching and timely hitting. My fourth starter is back to the right-hand side, and it is the newest member of what I consider the great starting pitchers of the New York Mets, and that is the back-to-back -back Cy Young Award winner in Jacob deGrom. 
Let's put this in context. What Jacob deGrom has done in two seasons is win a Cy Young Award with as many wins as Dwight Gooden had in 1985. In two seasons. Not only did he win two consecutive Cy Young Awards, they were jokes. He got tw uh, 29 out of 30 first place votes both years. Jack O'Conlon, who is the, um, the recording secretary of the Baseball Writers Association of America, he actually said on MLB Network, when they said, Jack, who's the National League Cy Young Award winner for 2019? And he goes, well, it's the same as last year. DeGrom made a mockery of the Major League's last two years. But that's not the one I want to talk about. Let's talk about his three starts in 2015 in the postseason. When he set the all-time Met record for strikeouts in Game 1 of the 2015 NLDS, beating Clayton Kershaw in L.A., Game 5, when he didn't have it, gutting through six innings, keeping the Mets in the game for Syndergaard and Familia to slam the door. And then we talk about his start in the NLCS against the Cubs. A phenomenal, phenomenal start where he, again, didn't really have his best stuff, but went on to get a W in a big game for the Mets that would propel them to their most recent pennant. So 1 through 4, it's pretty solid. This will be the surprise. In the number five spot, I have maybe the biggest warrior to ever put on a Met uniform, and that is a man I saw pitch a three-hit shutout in game 161 in 2008 at Shea Stadium the day before they closed it. That's right. Nohan himself, Johan Santana, rounds out the Mets' starting rotation I have for my all-time top 25-man roster. Um, beyond that game, uh, if Santana would have had any help in 2008, he not only would have won a Cy Young in the National League in his first year, I believe Santana would have been in the conversation for the MVP in 2008. Uh, he was the ace the Mets badly needed after Pedro was injured a lot of his time after 05. But then we go back to June 1st of 2012. We just passed the eight-year anniversary of the first and still only no-hitter in New York Mets history. As a Met fan, I have been blessed to have two men call games now that are Met fans from day one in Howie Rose and, of course, Gary Cohen. Howie on the radio, Gary on TV with Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling. To hear Howie Rose and Gary Cohen call the final out of that game, as a lifelong Met fan, it brought tears to my eyes. To hear Howie Rose say, in the 8,020th game in the history of the New York Mets, they finally have a no-hitter. To hear Gary Cohen go, it has happened. In their 51st season, Johan Santana has thrown the first no-hitter in the history of the New York Mets. By my account, he's on this list for a reason. So I just spent the first almost 10 minutes talking about the starting rotation because that's what the Mets have been defined by. But now I'm going to get into the bullpen, where they have also been very, very lucky. Although last year's record really wouldn't tell you they were very, very lucky in the bullpen. But we're going to start with the long man. And that is an actual starting pitcher I toyed with having in the number five spot. And that is Ron Darling. Yes, that Ron Darling, who not only just does Adam uh, Shallow Hal and call games on TBS and SNY, Ron Darling won 99 games in a New York Met uniform. Uh, has always joked he wanted to go back and win his 100th. But Darling was the 
Okay. Darling was Kuzmin to Gooden Seaver in the 80s. Uh, brought over in the early 80s in a trade for Lee Mazzilli with the Texas Rangers uh, with Walt Terrell, who then got them a guy who's also on this team in Howard Johnson. Uh, was a solid, solid number two. He was not overpowering. He was a sinker slider guy, mostly split finger fastball, now that I think about it. Uh, of course, Darling's big moments with the New York Mets were his two stellar starts in the 1986 World Series in games one and four. One, he gets a tough luck loss. In game four, of course, he wins in his hometown in Boston. The second person in the bullpen, and I'm not naming a closer, I'm not doing that. I just, Darling is a long man as a starter. The second one is the guy who holds the record for the most saves in a single season in New York Mets history, and that is Jerry's Familia. Now, for everybody who's going to argue with me on this, think about this. This is the guy who without him, we don't get to the 2015 World Series. This is the guy who without him, we don't get to the 2016 National League wildcard game. Familia, yes, has had some downtime since, but he is still a clutch pitcher who I believe will bring us a lot of fun in the future. The third, fourth, and fifth members of the Met bullpen on this team are three of the best lefties to ever do it in a bullpen. Let's start at, from the older member of this group, and that is Tug McGraw, the man who gave us you gotta believe in the middle of an ownership meeting. He also gave us Tim McGraw, too, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, Tugger was a member of both the 69 championship team and the 73 pennant winning team, but he was as dominant as any closer of the time, and I'm including Fingers and Gossage in that, down the stretch in that 1973 season with a sub-2 ERA and something like 15 or 16 saves back in the day when saves were more than an inning. So he's one of them. The next one is the man whose glove has not landed yet. And that is, of course, Jesse Orozco, who became the first pitcher in Major League history to win three games in relief in the same league championship series, winning games three, five, and six uh, in 1986 against Houston. Also, of course, getting the final out of the 86 World Series, striking out Marty Barrett and watching that glove go in the air, and then the dog pile started. But Orozco was also a long-tenured Met. He was actually traded for Jerry Kuzman, uh, coming over from Minnesota in the 70s, and he made his Major League debut in 1979. He spent 80 in the, in the Bush Leagues, and then he went back up in 81. It was with the Mets through the end of the 87 season. And then I, I think he's still pitching today. That man is so old doing it. But no, in all seriousness, uh, Orozco pitched a long time. He actually had a cup of coffee with the Mets in 2000 before being traded to St. Louis for Joe McEwing. The third and final member of this trio or triumvirate of lefties in this Mets bullpen is the major league leader in saves for a left-handed pitcher. He is one of the longest tenured Mets in history, and he was the third captain in New York Mets history, and that is John Franco. Born in Brooklyn, spent 15 of his, I think, 19 major league seasons in New York. As the story goes, it was around Christmas 1989. The Reds had called him, I believe it was Christmas Eve, uh, and said, John, you've been traded. They told him where he was going. Franco walked out in the living room. They said, what's wrong? He said, I just got traded. And they said, where? And he smiled and said, to the Mets. 
Franco holds the all-time record for saves in a Met uniform with 276, 422 overall. Should be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. He's the all-time leader in something. There aren't many all-time leaders in anything not named Pete Rose or Barry Bonds that aren't in the Hall of Fame. So I close out with two more righties, and I'm going to go with Jesse Orozco's running mate, the lunatic himself, Roger McDowell. Now, McDowell may have been known for stealing the uh, ATV of the Philly Fanatic. He may be the greatest hot foot giver in the history of Major League Baseball, but Roger McDowell was one of the biggest big game pitchers the New York Mets have ever had. What gets lost in a subpar World Series performance is the fact that in that epic Game 6 against Houston in 1986, Roger McDowell pitched five shutout innings to keep the Mets in that game and keep a shot at the World Series, and most importantly, a shot at missing Mike Scott for a third time right on the table. Finally, I close with the guy who was the closer in 2000, the second most recent time the Mets went to the World Series, and that is Armando Benitez. People ask me why. Why Armando? Because for the two years in a Met uniform, really two and a half, uh, halfway through 99, he took the job over from John Franco. Of course, all of 2000, all of 2001, Benitez was as lights out as it gets and was a phenomenal, phenomenal closer. Uh, he held the record until Familia broke it. So that rounds out the Met bullpen. Now I'm going to get to the position players, and I'm going to start with the starting lineup. And I made this starting lineup just kind of how I would put one together in my head. And as I said, I'm going to say a little something about each guy. Leading off is one of the greatest homegrown players the New York Mets have ever produced. The shortstop, Jose Reyes, who leads the team in triples and and stolen bases all time. Uh, He is the only Met to ever win a batting title. He did that in his final season in 2011. Uh, Of course, Reyes then went to Miami, to Toronto, a tumultuous time in Colorado. And then Met fans got what they wanted when Jose Reyes was brought back in after the David Wright injury in 2016. Now, we didn't get to see, other than the one game in David's final game, what we had wanted to see for 15 years or so, and that is Reyes and Wright in the left side of the infield. Jose Reyes, at the end of the day, may be one of the best leadoff men of this generation. Uh, In his second full season, he stole 50 bases. And in in 2006, excuse me, he stole 77 bags. And amazing, especially now when you don't run, when you're hitting more home runs than anything. So Reyes leads off pretty easy. The second place hitter is the second baseman. The guy who holds the record for most home runs in RBIs as a second baseman with the New York Mets. And that is Edgardo Alfonso. An all-star, a member of the 2000 uh, pennant-winning club, and maybe one of the best clutch hitters the New York Mets have ever had. Uh, He was a coach in the Mets system, and he's still around City Field today. Fonzie uh, was part of that greatest infield ever of Olerud, Alfonso, Ray Ordonez, and Robin Ventura. Batting third, there's only one answer. It is the only answer that any Mets fan will give And that is very simply, Keith Hernandez. I hold a special kinship to Keith Hernandez because him and my father look alike. Uh, And in all seriousness, you are talking about the greatest defensive first baseman to ever play the game. It's not even a dispute or a, a debate. 
Wes Parker, who was on the all-time Rawlings team? I don't think so. It's Keith Hernandez. No one charged a bunt. No one played first played balls in the dirt or played the line better than Keith Hernandez. Uh, the first captain in New York Mets history. A part of the one trade, the two trades that you will remember where you were when they happened and the dates on the good side, that is. June 15th, 1983, Rick Ownby and Neil Allen go to the St. Louis Cardinals for Keith Hernandez. And starting from the day he got there, the Mets were the most dominant team in the National League until the day he left. Plain and simple. The fourth place hitter is only the second Hall of Famer in New York Mets history. That is the greatest hitting catcher of all time, number 31, Mike Piazza. Uh, Piazza is fondly remembered for the September 21st home run in 2001. Um, I remember where I was that day. And he is the answer to the second trade. May 22nd, 1998, Preston Wilson, Eddie Arnold, Jeff Getz to the Miami, Florida Marlins, excuse me, for Mike Piazza. So Piazza bats fourth. And when you think about it, the Mets have been very blessed at catcher. Jerry Grody may be one of the better defensive catchers of all time. Of course, Gary Carter and Mike Piazza. I have Piazza on this team. Batting fifth and playing right field is the number one overall pick from the 1980 Major League Baseball first-year player draft. The man who still to this day, because of David Wright's injuries, holds the record for most home runs uh, as a New York Met, and that is Daryl Strawberry. Um, Funny side note, I met Daryl in 1988 in Kingston, New York, close to where I live, at the Holiday Inn. And I'll tell you what, he was larger than life then. I've seen stuff of him on TV recently. He's still larger than life. Daryl Strawberry was six foot six with that big leg kick, and he hit the baseball a country mile every time he made good contact. Two thoughts of Strawberry. One is a ball he hit when I was there uh, as a kid, and it landed on the stairs for the subway. Over the fence, the bullpen, the bullpen fence, in the parking lot. The other one is, of course, opening day 1988 in Montreal when he hit the roof of Olympic Stadium. That's not a typo, and that's not misspeaking. He hit the roof. An absolute missile. The sixth-place hitter is the center fielder. Maybe the greatest free agent acquisition the Mets have ever had, and that is Carlos Beltran. Now his tenure as a manager, of course, never got off the ground because of the issues with the Houston Astros and the cheating. But Carlos Beltran as a Mets player was a revelation. Multi-time gold glover. He hit for power average. He ran. He played better defense than any center fielder I think I've seen in person. And I saw him a couple of times. Beltran was everything he was advertised to be except for the 2005 season for all the years he was with the Mets. His trade in 2011 or 2010, yeah, 2010, brought us Zach Wheeler. So, listen, Beltron is the center fielder. I had a lot of other choices. I had Tommy Agee. I had Mookie. But nobody had the impact that Beltron did. The left fielder batting seventh, uh, and I changed the order in the batting order that I had printed out, is Cleon Jones. Maybe the best average hitter the Mets have ever produced from their farm system. He also is most famous for catching the final out of the 1969 World Series and genuflecting down what many people don't remember is the shoe polish play. When he got hit by hit in the foot by a pitch, 
Gil Hodges comes out, shows him the shoe polish. Cleon Jones gets on first. Don Clendenin hits a two-run homer to make it 3-2. Batting eighth. And in real life, he wouldn't bat here. But it's the third baseman. And again, there's only one answer. And that is the fourth captain in New York Mets history, David Allen Wright. I will remind the listening audience for a final time because we are coming upon July 1st very quickly. Bobby Bonilla had his contract redone to be released and pay him later in life. With the money the Mets saved, they signed, they made a trade to bring in Mike Hampton and Roger Cedeno, or I'm sorry, Mike Hampton and Derek Bell from the Houston Astros for the 2000 season, which netted them the fourth pennant in franchise history. When Mike Hampton left, the Mets were given a compensatory pick in the 2001 Major League Baseball first-year player draft, and they took the captain. So thank you, Bobby Bonilla. I am tired of hearing crap. He is the Mets' all-time leader in hits, RBIs, on-base percentage, walks, war. Uh, Just go. And it's all David Wright with few exceptions. He would have broken the Mets' all-time home run record had he not been injured. Um, You want to talk about moments? We talk about the first home run, or the home run on the third pitch after he came back from spinal stenosis in 2015. We talk about the home run he hit in the World Series, which I still say to this day, anybody else hits that home run, the crowd goes crazy. We were a little louder because it was the captain. So now we get to the bench players, and here I try to fill in a bench that would be functional for an actual team to use. So on my bench, my backup catcher is the other Hall of Famer that has gone behind the plate for the New York Mets, and that's Gary Carter, uh, the kid who left us far too soon, um, just before the 2012 season. Um What's there to say about the kid? He started the rally to win game six. I don't believe the Mets win a World Series without Gary Carter. Although a lot of the players will tell you they don't win a World Series without Keith Hernandez. The next guy is the, he's number one in your scorebooks and number one in your hearts. And he's the man who inspires Met fans to moo. And that is William Hayward Mookie Wilson. The only Met to suit up for the entire decade of the 80s making his debut in 1980 and leaving the team partway through the season in 1989 to the Toronto Blue Jays for a pitcher named Jeff Musselman. This is where I'm at. I remember who Mookie Wilson was traded for. The next guy is one of three third basemen in the history of Major League Baseball to be a 30-30 player, to go with David Wright in 2007 and Jose Ramirez from the Cleveland Indians in 2018, and that is none other than Hojo Howard Johnson. Um, what's there to say about Howard Johnson? A switch hitter with power and speed. He played not only third base, but he played some shortstop for the Mets too in 1990. Um, he was a phenomenal grab sent after the Mets sent Walt Terrell to the Texas or to the Detroit Tigers to acquire him before the 1985 season. The next two are more modern Mets, and I'm going to add a caveat. I'm going to do a 26th man on this roster like they would have done this year. The 24th man on the roster is Joanna Cespedes. Now, before everybody jumps on my back, oh, he hasn't done anything. Without Joanna Cespedes, the New York Mets do not win the 2015 pennant. Plain and simple. 
He is why they won the pennant. And his insane production for the year and a half he was healthy is why Cespedes is still with the Mets now. His 2016 was awesome. His 2015 from August 1st on was insanity. He hit 17 dingers in a month and a half. He hit a, he hit a couple in the playoffs. One that would have broken somebody if it would have hit him. His World Series wasn't up to snuff, but nobody on the Mets was up to snuff in the World Series except for maybe Matt Harvey and Michael Conforto. Oh, and Granderson. But Cespedes is on the bottom of, my, of that list. The other one is my true defensive pick, and that is the second goal glover in center field for the New York Mets, and that is Juan Lagares. This is a hard pick. I loved Lagares when he was here because he's no longer with the team. Um, I love his glove. I love he was fast. He made some plays that I never thought could be made. And I'm watching this guy and I'm going, oh, oh, oh this is phenomenal. I personally think that Cespedes coming over and the emergence of Michael Conforto is what killed Cesc- or Lagares with the Mets organization because he didn't get to play much. And finally, my 26th player. It's the man we all mourned and cried over on opening day in 2018, and that is LeGrand Orange himself, Rusty Staub, maybe the greatest pinch hitter in baseball history. He is ninth on baseball's all-time most uh, games played list. Listen, Rusty was the first Met to have over 100 RBIs. He was the cornerstone of the offense of that 1973 pennant win, even though Tug running his mouth is what got him there. So I, I felt I had to add a 26 player, and it had to be Rusty Stop. So the man to lead this team is the man who won the team's second championship and the man who flew out to end the World Series during the team's first championship, and that is Davey Johnson. As an in-game tactician, Johnson was pretty good. Uh, again, he I was seven, eight, nine years old when he was still a Met manager, but watching those teams, there weren't a lot of buttons Davey pushed that didn't work, except the Greg Jeffries button. That was a pretty bad one. But outside of that, Davey was phenomenal. In 1983, the Mets were a last-place team, and in 84, they challenged the Cubs right to the end of the season, which had Frank Cashin go out and get Gary Carter, which led to a 98-win season in 85 and a 108-win season in a World Series in 1986. Davey Johnson never finished lower than second place as the manager of the Mets. Never. And this is he took a 90-loss team and made him an almost 90-win team. Then he went 98. Then he won 108. I think they won 90 games in 87, and then they won 100 games again in 1988. So Davey leads the team. His bench coach is, of course, the man who led them to their first world championship, a guy who should be elected by the Veterans Committee, or whatever they're called now, to the Baseball Hall of Fame for his playing days, and that is Gil Hodges. Gil Hodges was the quiet, reserved, really gentle giant that the Mets needed so badly, they traded the Washington Senators a player for him. Gill's a bench coach. The pitching coach is Mel Stottlemyre, of course, who was at the helm of those great rotations in the 80s and those young arms that just were explosive. Beyond that, he turned a middle-of-the-road left-handed pitcher in Bobby Ojeda into an 18-game winner. Sid Fernandez was another project of his that was great. He coached 
of course, with the Yankees as well. But Mel got his first ring as a coach with the New York Mets. The first base coach is the first base coach from those 1969 champions and the manager of the 1973 champions, Yogi Berra. Listen, if he's talking about it ain't over till it's over, remember, the 73 Mets were 83 and 79. They were terrible the first half of the year, but he kept with it and they won a pennant and they almost beat the Oakland A's in the World Series. I still think they they should have won that series, but they didn't and it was 30 some years ago. 40-something years ago. 40-some years ago, yeah. And finally, the third base coach is the only man to ever be in uniform for both titles that the New York Mets have won, and that is Buddy Harrelson, the shortstop on the 1969 World Championship team and the 1973 pennant winners, and, of course, the third base coach for the 86 Mets. True story. Lenny Dykstra ends Game 3 of the World Series on a home run. Nine months to the day. Buddy has a child. He should thank Lenny Dykstra. So just from top to bottom, again, the pitchers. Seaver, Gooden, Kuzman, DeGrom, and Santana make out the starting rotation. Darling, Familia, Tug McGraw, John Franco, Jesse Orozco, Armando Benitez, and Roger McDowell take care of the bullpen. Reyes, Alfonso, Hernandez, Piazza, Strawberry, Beltron. Cleon Jones, David Wright are the eight starting fielders. Of course, Gary Carter, Mookie Wilson, Howard Johnson, Cespedes, Ligaris, and Rusty on the bench. Listen, in 58 years, the Mets have had a lot of great players come through. Ricky Henderson, Willie Mays, Oral Hershiser, Al Leiter, uh, John Matlack, Dr. Ron Taylor. The list goes on. Had a lot of great moments from the Grand Slam single of Robin Ventura in 1999 to the complete game shutout of the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 5 of the night of the 2000 NLCS by Mike Hampton to, of course, the 69 run, the 86 Magic. The Mets have had it left, right, and center for 58 years. I'm hoping 59th will actually be played. So I want to do something different this week, and my buddies at TimeSkew are going to help me out. And I meant to say this. Big Recon on Sports is a proud member of the TimeSkew podcast family. Sorry, guys. I missed it. I was jumping into the Mets. Um, I want to do a Q&A show. So anybody listening or reading the tweets or what have you, give me your questions about Major League Baseball, college football, the NFL, uh, and the NBA. I would love to go through and answer questions this next upcoming episode, which I'm going to do next Sunday. As always, Big Recon can be found on Google, Spotify, Anchor, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and as I said a minute ago, we are a new proud member of the TimeSkew Podcast Network. You can find us on timeskew.com slash podcast. You can be found on Instagram, on Twitter at, at Big Recon on Sport. Instagram is at Big Recon on Sports. Big Recon on Sport on YouTube, where if you're watching, you're watching it here. And Big Recon on Sports on Facebook. So hopefully get your questions in. I'd love to do a Q&A for next week. Any topic on the four majors, and if you want to go outside of that, if you want to get specific to my teams or even your own, in my opinion of it, go right ahead. We will talk to you guys in a week. Have a good one.